out so we can harass you or anything like that. We just want this information so we can, A, feel like you're supported, and B, let you know that you're loved, okay? So this is just to let you know that we care about you and we were so happy that you guys were here today. Um, also, we have a prayer request. Whether you're new or you're a member, you've been here going 30 years, okay? We have prayer requests. So if you need a prayer request, just fill out the back, okay? All you gotta do is put your name on the front, please. Prayer request, fill that out. And you can return these if you're new, please return them to the greeters out on the foyer. Um, but if you just have a prayer request, you may go ahead and put that into the basket. That's no problem, okay? Um, I'm gonna go ahead and lead us into our faith statement. Oh yes, if you could stand up please. This is my first time, so I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Go. All right, thank you so much. All right, so we're gonna go ahead and say our faith statement, all right? We like to say this loud and, and proud, okay? So let's go ahead and begin, ready? Our faith statement, we are sword drawn, word ready, purpose filled. We will not be denied. And in Jesus' name, we will do everything not somehow, but triumphantly. All right, let's worship, y'all. Got a few little extra helpers up here this morning. Y'all give them a hand this morning for being up here. Lord, 
is faithful. He is just. He is good. He is kind. He is love. He is all love. You can trust him no matter what you're going through. But you know what? It takes something on our part. We got to make a choice. We got to choose to trust him. We got to choose to praise him no matter what's going on. And I know from experience, when you praise him in the bad times, come on, he works it out. He makes a way where there looks like there's no way. I'm on the sack now. I'm on the I got on
Hello, hello, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Miss Pat, will you get my PowerPoint up there, please? And thank you. It is great to see all of you guys this morning. All these new smiling faces. My name is Josiah Hodge, and I have the honor of being the, the lead pastor here at Crossroads World Outreach Center. And it's an honor to have all of you guys here with us. If you're looking up here like, who is this young man? This guy's way too young to be a pastor. I probably am, but you know what? The Lord's using me. So praise God. And y'all, I'm just a guy that loves Jesus. Like y'all really, I'm real simple. I'm a guy that loves Jesus and I want other people to love Jesus because Jesus first loved us. Yes. 
And so I'm a real simple person, y'all. I love Jesus, and I just long to see other people come into the family. Because guess what? If, if you believe in Jesus, you're my brother or my sister. And if you're new to this church, but all of you who go here, you know I'm constantly saying we're a family. We're a family. And I don't mean that lightly, y'all. We have the very same spirit as God in us, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so whether you realize it or not, you're here for a purpose today. There's a reason you're here. Even if you were dragged here by your grandmother, <laughs> you're here for a purpose. And thank you to all of those who, who invited people because we love you guys. So the whole purpose of this day was to invite our friends and our family because we love you guys. And I have the immense honor to share the ultimate truth of all eternity with you today in a world that tells us to find your own truth in a world that tells you there are multiple ways to heaven, I carry a burden on my shoulders today to share the truth with you today. That there is one truth and there is one way to the Father and one way to heaven. So please, while you're here, for a short 30 minutes max, please just give me your attention because I promise you it's worth it. I promise you it's worth hearing what we have to say and afterwards we're going to go and have a great time together. And I'm so excited to hang out with you guys and just fellowship over a meal and have games for the kids and I'm so excited for this today. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please open to Acts chapter 17 verses 22 through 31. And it's a custom in this house that we stand when we read the word of God. So in a second, I'm going to have you guys stand as we read this passage. But first, I just want to set the stage of what's happening here. We're opening to a story you can see on the screen. I have a handy dandy little PowerPoint. You can see on the screen, this man standing there is Paul. And he's standing on a stage called the Areopagus. And this is where people came to talk about truth. So this is where people came to seek what the world would call their own truth. And so they would come to talk about religion, politics, culture, and science. And they would come and they would debate one another on what is the actual truth because each group of people had their own truth. And they would come and debate. And it sounds a little bit like our day today on social media, does it not? And so we're in a similar setting here in the fact that I'm standing before you and I'm here to reveal a truth to you. And whether you realize it or not, you're here because you're seeking truth. And there's something inside of you that longs for more. Nothing satisfies it and you long for more. And there's a discontent in your heart. And I'm here to tell you why that is here today. Because your heart is seeking for something beyond yourself. And I'm glad you're here today. And now I'm going to attempt to pull a Paul. Say, he's going to pull a Paul. Now say that four times fast. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just joking. Will you stand with me as we read the, God, the words, God, if you are able to stand? Acts chapter 17, verse 22, and it says, start saying this. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you today. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything 
since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might search for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men and women everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man Jesus whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. You can be seated. And Father God, right now in this moment, I just, I just pray a quick prayer that you would pierce the hearts of everyone in here. And Lord God, the gospel, we never outgrow the gospel. The gospel is the good news forever. So whether we've heard the gospel a thousand times or this is the first time we're hearing of it, King Jesus, I just pray we experience you in a new way today. I pray that we see you in a new way today. And King Jesus, I just pray that your words penetrate the heart because there's nothing that I can say that can transform the life. But when someone just sees a glimpse of you, it changes their life forever. So King Jesus, we give you all the glory and all the honor forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul starts off, he starts in the very beginning, and he, and, and he starts off with this. Genesis 1, 1 through 3 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there's, there's darkness, there's no form, and then something amazing happens, and it says this, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God spoke. And what the world would probably call the Big Bang, I call the voice of God. And I call a manifestation of His power. And as He spoke, the cosmos came into being. And, and you know what's incredible about the cosmos? There is 350 billion galaxies in the known universe. 350 billion galaxies, and just as his word, these came to being, and you want to know how many planets there are? Times that by 10. There's not even a number big enough. And when God spoke the cosmos, what we call the heavens, came into being. And when he spoke, the earth was created. Can we just, can we just look at these pictures real fast and just look at the insurmountable beauty that when God spoke, these were formed? the insurmountable beauty and creativity and design. And can I tell you this, more than ever before, there are modern scientists who are saying, we can't disprove God because this is too amazing. And the modern scientists of this day are writing books saying why we cannot disprove God, why we cannot disprove the existence of God. Because in the creation, in the study of creation, there is no way a bang could happen and this would happen. We know what it looks like when stars collide and it doesn't look like this. So when God spoke into existence, beauty appeared. Beauty appeared. And even more amazing than that is the fact that this creation, not only is it beautiful, but it was so perfectly designed to fit the need of every living creature on the face of the earth. Biomes, atmospheres, ecosystems. He created everything so intricately that it all forms properly together. 
Individual ecosystems, animals living with one another, life and breath from the trees, that we have everything we need to live on this planet. So not only did he give us beauty, but he sustained every need of every living creature. And then something incredible happens in Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27. It says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That's the Holy Trinity, because we are spirit, soul, body. We are three as the Father is three. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And Genesis 1.31 says this, God saw all that he made and it was very good. Can I tell you, if someone ever said you weren't good, if someone ever called you trash, it's not true. If you've ever been hurt, if you've ever been put down, if you've ever been belittled, it's not true. Because the God of the universe who created you saw you and he said that, that is good. And then something happens here. So God creates humanity, but he gives us this thing called free will. Because in his insurmountable love, he said, I don't want you to love me just because you have to. I want you to love me because you want to. That's the best type of love. So God creates us with free will. And guess what we humans do, which, which we always do? We do the one thing we're told we're not supposed to do. Genesis 2, verse 15 through 17 says this. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man this. You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For, one day, for on the day you eat from it, you shall certainly die. And so we go into this scene in chapter 3, and there's this critter that we call a serpent, but that we as Christians call the devil. He is the adversary of all humanity trying to pull us from the Father. And it shows up, and it's like, what in the world? How the heck can a snake talk? But we're not going to get into that. Anyways, <laughs> and so he goes to Eve, and he says, surely God did not say that. Surely God did not say you would die. You won't die. God is afraid you will become a God like he is. God is afraid that you will know what he knows. And through that, the first time in history, we don't know how many years they were even in the garden. We don't know. But for the first time in human history, because they're human, uh, we, we willingly rebel. And this thing comes into the world. But there's something key about this situation when Adam and Eve take of the fruit, it's called sin. It's a willful rebellion against God. But what happens is this. Their reaction is to run and hide because they're shame and guilt. And there's something key in this for every single person in this room. God never ran from them. God never hid from them. He sought them. He pursued them. He called out to them, Adam, where are you? And this is key for us today because when we sin, God doesn't run from us. When we sin, God doesn't hide from us. We run. We hide. God is never far from any one of us. It's key to see because this has been this way since the beginning of humanity. And this big S-I-N word comes in, and sometimes this word is really used as a weapon against people. And it's sad, but it's true. But the church has used this as a weapon at times to point fingers but sin is a willful rebellion against God and his commands and ways. So answer me this. Have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever been bitter? Have you ever walked in pride? Have you ever been intoxicated or drunk? Have you ever walked in greed? Guess what? I have. Me too. I'm guilty. 
And so what happens is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It puts us all at this equal playing field. When sin rushes in, no one is exempt from our forefather, Adam. It comes through our DNA. It's the human condition. This is all of us. So we should take some solace in knowing it's not just me. We're in this thing called life together. Sin starts to spread further and and, and broader and brother kills brother and war breaks out between families and people are murdered and there's deceit and there's adultery and there's idolatry and it runs rampant and it looks hopeless. It looks hopeless. You look at the world today and some people feel hopeless today. Who could possibly free us from this condition? This is the question and the prophecy, and there's prophecies that start to come forth that there will be a man born fully God and fully man to save the people from their sins and to set them free. The modern world we live in is looking for a Messiah. Everyone is turning, looking for answers in this world where nothing makes sense anymore. Every, almost every movie, there's a child that is prophesied. There's a chosen one. And everything is pointing towards a Messiah because we innately know we can't save ourselves. We innately know. I don't care if you want to disagree or agree. We innately know because all of us have been through seasons of hopelessness. All of us have felt hopeless. We all know what it's like to need someone to help us, to save us out of a situation. And so this is promised, but people struggle through a fallen world. And God gives humanity what we call the law of God. And we, of course, we take it and we make it worse than it already is. And we make it harder than it already is because we saw the law as having to be perfect. But God just wanted us to love him. And we as humans make it harder and harder and it looks hopeless and feels hopeless. And there's, there's a season of thousands of years where it looks hopeless. It's a never-ending, never-ending cycle of hopelessness. No one can find hope. They look for hope in kings. They look for hope in armies. And nothing satisfies, nothing delivers, nothing sets free. Till one day hope is born into the world. The image of the invisible God, Jesus, is born fully man fully God, the one that it was prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, which says this, for a child will be born for us. You see how it says for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, because everywhere Jesus reigns, there is peace. In a hopeless world, hope is born And this was prophesied 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And can I tell you, some promises are worth waiting for. Some promises are worth waiting for. And even at his birth, he draws every social class to put us all on an equal playing field. Shepherds come to him. Kings travel thousands of miles to see him. And even at the moment of his birth, all of humanity, no matter what social class, no matter what race, no matter what ethnicity you are, we're all put on an evil playing field at the feet of Jesus. So shepherds come and they sit at his feet and they worship him. And kings come and they worship him. And kings and peasants come together to worship Jesus. Even at his birth, we are all put at an even playing field. All sinners in need of a savior. From the highest to the lowest, they all bow to him at his birth for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this baby grows up and he starts to do something very interesting. And he's going around and he's calling normal people to follow him. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is going to blue collar people and saying, follow me. 
He didn't go to the highest or the richest. He went to the the modern person, the ordinary person, the day-to-day average Joe, and he starts to call them to follow him, and they do something even crazier. They actually follow him. If someone came up to me and said, hey, follow me, just leave your wife and your, and your baby and your unborn baby and just come with me. Nah, man, it's not happening. But they do something even crazier and they see something in Jesus. Because when you see Jesus, you're changed. And they see something in him and they know there's something more to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he starts teaching and his teachings are revolutionary because they don't just focus on the habit change. They focus on the transformation of the heart of humanity. So Jesus doesn't say, don't kill someone. He says, I don't even want you to ever have the desire of hatred in your heart towards someone. And he brings the manifesto of the kingdom of God, which is laying out the revolution of the kingdom of God in the earth. And people don't know how to deal with him. Highest officials in Rome are terrified of him because they think there's going to be a revolt. I love having little ones in service. Hey, Rachel, by the way, I want to say props to you for having your little man up here because kids watch us and they learn how to worship from how we worship. So thank you for doing that. Sorry, that was a side piece, but I love having little ones in service with us. This is a family church and I love having little ones with us. So people don't know how to deal with him. Why? Because Rome has dealt with revolutions before and it's bloody and it's nasty. They don't want to lose any more money or soldiers. And the religious officials are terrified of him because he believes in the same God, but he does it a different way. And little do they know that the one that they've been waiting for for thousands of years is right in front of their very faces. He's a revolutionary, but not in the sense that we're used to or they were used to, because he speaks with an authority in his voice. He heals the sick, the blind, the lame, the deaf. And people are terrified of him because they don't know how to reconcile what's happening before their very eyes. Have any of us ever had a moment like that in our lives? Something's something's happening in us we just can't, we don't know how to come to terms with. So I want to walk us through this man, Jesus, who he was, what he did. And so he starts traveling the country with his, his, what they call disciples, his followers. And this man named Nicodemus comes to him, and Nicodemus is a very, very high official in the religious quarters. He's a Pharisee. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, surely you're a man of God, because no one can perform the signs you do without being empowered by God. And Jesus says this remark to him. Jesus says in John 3.3, 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God and Nicodemus freaks out. How can a man of my age crawl back into my mother's womb? That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus says this. He says, how do you expect me to reveal heavenly things to you if I can't even explain earthly things to you? And so Jesus takes the highest religious official that he's met and he puts him on the playing field equal to everybody else. And the most famous passage in the Bible, but we neglect in the next couple of verses. John 3.16, this is the conversation he's having with Nicodemus. But let me tell you this about Jesus. Jesus never turned away anyone who was genuinely seeking answers. God is not afraid of your questions. And so in the church, a lot of the times I've noticed in my own life, when you ask a question that's hard, people don't want to answer it and they can kick you to the side sometimes. But Jesus is not afraid of your questions and Nicodemus came with questions. John 3, 16 through 19 says this, right? We love 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We love that, his unique son, Jesus. 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I believe that. Amen. Praise God. But this is beautiful. Verse 17. For God, listen, listen, people, because we have a misconception of Christ in the American culture. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus did not come to condemn, but to save. He who believes in him is not condemned, praise God. But he who does not believe is condemned already because this, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and is Jesus. And men and women loved darkness rather than light because this, because our deeds are evil. We don't want to come to terms with the fact that we have evil inside of us. Because Jesus makes us analyze ourselves. Jesus makes us become introspective in who we are and how we live our lives. So Jesus did not come to condemn, to point fingers. He came to save and he came to open the door for humanity. And it's okay to have questions. After Jesus' iconic Sermon on the Mount, this is one of my favorite stories in the entire scriptures. Jesus, y'all, there were thousands. Jesus is coming down the mountain And next thing he knows, he hears unclean, unclean, and a bell jingling. And the crowd starts to part like the Red Sea. And a man runs to Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's one thing you have to understand about lepers in that society. They were marginalized. They were the pariah. They were the outcast. You could have had a family. You could have been perfectly healthy. You could have been a man working. You could have had children and a wife or you could have been a wife with children and the moment you contracted leprosy guess what happened you didn't exist anymore you weren't a part of your own family you were now an outcast not allowed to be around society and everywhere you went you had to scream unclean unclean and you had to wear a bell like an animal And so this man comes running to Jesus. This is probably his first human interaction he's genuinely had in years. And he runs to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And scripture says this. Some versions say Jesus lent a hand, but the actual Greek Greek verbiage is this. Jesus embraced him. Jesus didn't speak first. Jesus embraced a a leper in front of the crowd. He embraced him and said, I am willing, be made clean. And like that, he was healed. But I'm not even even so concerned about the healing. I'm concerned about the heart of Jesus. That the marginalized, the pariah of society, Jesus did not turn him away, but Jesus went to him. That man was at the feet of Jesus and Jesus could have stepped away and said, be made healed. But no, Jesus goes to him, picks him up, hugs him, doesn't even say a word first. This was probably the first affection this man had had in years. And Jesus hugs him and says, I am willing to be made clean. Jesus goes to the marginalized and he does it today. He is close to the outcast. He is close to the pariah of society and he never turns them away, even though society may. In a world of outcasts, in a world where if you disagree, you're kicked to the side, Jesus never will. Jesus will never turn you away. Jesus and his disciples are traveling and they stop outside this town called Samaria. And a little background, Jews and Samarians hate one another. There's a history there. We're not going to get into it. But Jesus is tired from the travels and he sits and the disciples say they're going to go get supplies for the 
journey ahead. And this woman comes to the well and Jesus says, hey, will you give me a drink? And she looks at Jesus and says, you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Because there's a history there. It's awkward. They don't like it. There's strife. There's tension. And Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink. Because mine never runs dry and it quenches your thirst. And, she sa- and she's like, what are, are you greater than Jacob? Who are you, you weirdo? And she's pausing like, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get water? Like, what are you talking about? Right? Because Jesus says these things and we're like, I got to think about that for a second. And so he says this and then they go into this conversation and Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, sir, I'm not married. And I need y'all to hear this because a lot of times we don't understand what's happening here. She says, sir, I'm not married. And Jesus says, I know you've been married five times and the man you're now living with is not your husband. And so we read that and people in the world are like, Jesus is a bigot. No, you have to understand historical context. In Jewish society, women could not divorce men. So this woman was not divorced because she wanted to be, it's because she was hurt and mistreated. And in Jewish society, you could divorce your wife just because you didn't think she was pretty enough. So this woman has been cast aside five times and now has to live with the man because women could not work in that culture. She could not earn a living, so she's doing whatever she can to survive. And Jesus looks at her not to condemn her, but because Jesus sees our hurt and he sees our past and he does not condemn us. He does not turn us away. And so she says, okay, sir, I see you're a prophet. And she talks about the coming Messiah. The first person Jesus ever, ever identified himself as the Messiah to was her. So don't bring that bigotry talk up in here because it's not true. Don't, don't, don't see Christians in modern day and attribute that to Jesus. That's not Jesus. So the first person Jesus even, even talked to himself and to her about the Messiah was a woman. We're all on the equal playing field here. And so she turns, and do you know what her response is? She tells her entire town who Jesus is. And it says many Samaritans flock to Jesus, not because of what she said, but because of what they saw inside of him. And Jesus sees our hurt. Jesus sees your hurt. Jesus sees your past. He does not condemn you for it. And he does not turn you away. Later on, Jesus is... He, they, they say he's riding in the sand because Jesus, Jesus just did some stuff. I'm like, Jesus, you're so cool, but so weird at the same time. And he's, he's riding something in the sand, and it never says, but I really want to know what he was riding in that sand. But it says that he was riding in the sand, and these men come, and they're dragging this woman out that was caught in God. It says in the middle of committing the act of adultery. So this lady probably was not properly clothed and they catch her in the act, which I don't even know how that happens, but they catch her in the act of this. I think it was all a setup for her and Jesus, but they catch her in the act of this thing. And they drag her before Jesus and they say this, look, Jesus is over here riding in the sand and y'all, it's beautiful because it says Jesus acts like he's not even hearing what they're saying. He's ignoring them because he's like, y'all are fools. I don't want to listen to you religious people right now. And so he's writing and he's writing. And so they're screaming, right? And it says they keep repeating themselves. In the law of Moses, this woman should be killed. She should be stoned. And Jesus, without ever even looking up for the sand, he says one of the most dynamic things in all of Scripture. Y'all, they had stones in their hand. They were, y'all, stoning is one of the most vicious, nasty deaths. You would literally get pelted to death with rocks. And Jesus is riding in the, stand, in the sand and he says, let he 
who is without sin cast the first stone. (laughs) And scripture says, one by one from the oldest to the youngest to the very last of them, after probably cussing out Jesus, if we're being completely honest, they drop their stones and they walk away. And this is the beauty of Jesus. Jesus then goes to the woman. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one left to accuse you? And she says, no, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. And can I tell you this? Jesus sees us even in our sin. He sees us in our sin. She was caught in the middle of adultery. Jesus sees us in our sin and still chooses to forgive us even in our worst moments. He does not turn us away. Jesus is eating with with what we would call sinners, what they would call sinners, tax collectors, drunkards, the homeless, prostitutes. And he's sitting, he's sitting at a table eating with them, which is amazing of Jesus because he's the friend of sinners. And the Pharisees say, who does he think he is associating with such people? Doesn't he say that he is a holy man? And Matthew 19 says this. Sorry, Matthew 9, verses 12 through 13 says this. When Jesus heard what they were saying, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus did not come for the righteous. He came for me. He came for you. He saw us in our past hurts, in our shame, in our guilt, in our depression, in our anxiety. He saw us in our worst moments, and he still came for us. For messed up people like me who was addicted to porn for the majority of my life. For messed up people... For messed up people like me who had so much hatred in my heart that I was a rage monster. He came for people like me. And Luke 15 tells us this. It's another occasion where Jesus is sitting with these people. It says tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees are pointing fingers at Jesus. Look at him. He's not who he says he is. No religious man would ever hang out with these people. And Jesus looks up and just like Jesus does, he tells a parable. And it's it's one of my favorite parables in the whole Bible. He said, if one of you had a hundred sheep and one got lost in the flock, would you not go searching for him? Would you not go looking for him. And this parable is saying that God is always in search and pursuit of the lost. And so he looks at these Pharisees and says, you are so religious, you're missing the whole point of why you're here. And Jesus says, I came for the sick, the lost, and the sinners. And can I tell you, God's search and pursuit of you never stops. You could be a drug addict, you could be stuck in the slums, it doesn't matter. His search and pursuit of you never stops. Jesus did not come to propagate a religion. He did not come to set up a religion, but he came to the outcast. He didn't cast out those who were deemed unworthy. He came to show the love of the Father to all people and to welcome us into the family of God. He came to restore what had been broken. 
He did not come so people could sit in chairs and think we're better than other people. We never outgrow the gospel. We need the gospel every day of our lives. But he came to restore what had been broken, not to put up a religion. You see, Jesus can relate to us in all things. He has experienced every aspect of the human condition. The King of kings and Lord of lords who was in heaven came and was born as a baby. How much weaker and lowly can you get than a baby? Babies can't feed themselves. Babies can't defend themselves. Babies are helpless. He came, Jesus came and experienced true helplessness so he can see us in our helplessness and give us mercy and grace for the day. Jesus came and he can can relate to every human emotion, every human experience. He has been tempted in every way as we He can relate to us, but he's been tempted in every way, but without sin. From the highest class to the lowest class, Jesus can relate to us. He is the God of the people who sees us where we are. Hebrews 4, verses 15 through 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, because he's by the right hand of the Father, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points was tempted as we are yet without sin. Because of that fact, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus is here and he is waiting for us. So we carry on and something, something happens. They don't know how to handle Jesus, so they look to get rid of Jesus. You ever heard of cancel culture? This is the cancel culture of Jesus' day. They don't know what to do with him, so they want to shut him up. And so they take him to this man named Pontius Pilate, who is a Roman official. And this is what happens. They bring him to him. And just as it always happens, Jesus and Pilate have a conversation. And do you know what Pilate's response is? I find no guilt in this man. There's, there's, he hasn't done anything wrong. And one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is it says Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And in that moment, I believe Jesus opened his eyes to the truth of eternity. But in that moment, he's before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate says, there's nothing I can do. And so he he releases him back to the Jewish people, but the Jewish people revolt. They say, crucify this man. And Pilate says, why would I kill this man? There's nothing wrong with this man. And so to appease the people, John 19.1 tells us that Pilate took Jesus and had him scourged, which literally meant he had him beaten with a whip and beat up by soldiers. And this was prophesied way back when, when people were looking for hope. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says this, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, our sin. The chastisement, which means the beating for our peace, was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And he went through all of that for you. All of that for me. And he does it for love. And so Pilate thinks he has a clever idea. And so at this time in year, they would always release one Jewish prisoner. And so he brings this man named Barabbas and he says, surely they will choose Jesus over Barabbas for freedom. Because Barabbas is a revolutionary. He's killed people. He's pillaged towns. Surely they'll choose Jesus to set free. And Barabbas is brought beside Jesus and they start chanting, Barabbas, Barabbas free Barabbas and Pilate is like, have you lost your minds? Do you know who this man is? And they chant Barabbas. But in that moment, in that moment, when Barabbas is by Jesus, it's a beautiful example of us. How we deserved 
punishment. We deserved wrath for how we lived our lives, but still, still God chose himself and set us free. And in that moment, Jesus is condemned. And, and it's crazy because after all this beating, they make him carry his cross to a place called Golgotha. After being tortured for us, after being beaten for us because of love, because he so loved the world that he came for each and every single one of us. And he carries his cross and they, they, they get to that point. They nail Jesus' hands, they nail his feet, and they, they prop him up. But even in that moment, the most amazing thing about Jesus is Jesus is still forgiving people. And even while having his hands and nails and the hands and feet nailed to the cross, he's saying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And even in that moment, Jesus still sees us as we are and forgives us. And Jesus is placed between two criminals who apparently have, have earned the same fate as he upon a cross. And one of the criminals is, is teasing Jesus. If you're God, free yourself. You're nobody. You're just like me. And then the other criminal is saying, have you lost your mind? This man is innocent. And he says, Lord, forgive me. And Jesus, even on the cross, Jesus is forgiving people and says, surely today you will be with me in paradise. And even in those moments of the hurt and the guilt and the shame and the beatings, Jesus is still forgiving humanity because he can relate to us in every way. So Jesus is on the cross and, and he's, he's about to take his last breath and he screams something as Tetelestai and he screams it. And it means this, it is finished. And he screams it and he takes his last breath breath and something incredible and impossible from a human perspective happens. It's what we call double imputation or the great exchange. And this is what happens when Jesus is on that cross. He absorbs our guilt, our shame, our sin, our anxiety, our past, our depression, our hopelessness, everything we've ever done wrong. He absorbs into himself. <laughs> And he takes everything he is and he trades us. And in that moment when he said it is finished, it was truly finished. And in that moment he took it and he absorbed it unto himself and he gave us freedom if we will simply accept the gift. And in that moment it was complete forgiveness. Up until that point, you had to sacrifice for every sin you ever did. Kill a lamb here, kill a lamb there, sacrifice an animal. It was blood and fire, blood and fire, blood and fire. But in this moment when Jesus said, to Telestai, the past, the present, and the future was forgiven. Everything you did in the past, the way you're living now, and what you'll do in the future was already covered by the blood of Jesus if you accept the promise. His death completed the sacrifice, one sacrifice for all time, the perfect lamb slain before the foundations of the world. Can I tell you, Jesus was always the plan. Jesus was not plan B, C, or D. Jesus was always plan A to show the love of the Father to a broken and hopeless world. Jesus died for all people for all time. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And so Jesus is hung upon this cross and he's dead and his disciples are freaking out. This is the guy who was supposed to free us. This is the guy that we followed for three and a half years. We followed his ministry. This was him. But now he's dead and panic and hopelessness reenter the hearts of the disciples. Jesus is dead. What do we do now? And if that was the end of the story, I could see why we would feel hopeless. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, after taking back the keys of death, sin, hell, and the grave in the spiritual realm, Jesus comes back. Do y'all hear me? Jesus comes back. It doesn't make sense. We can't rationalize it or we can't think through it logically, but he comes back. He comes back as victor, having defeated death, sin, and the grave because we never could. Not only did he live the perfect life we could not live for ourselves, but he died the perfect death, and more than that, he rose again. He comes back. Y'all, I'm telling you, he comes back as king, not working his way to be king. He comes back as king with all the authority and power on heaven and in earth in the palm of his hand. He comes back as king. He is a living hope, and because he lives, I have hope. In a world that there is no hope, because Jesus lives, because he rose again, I have hope. And listen, the fear that kept humanity crippled for all of eternity, what was it? It was death. We didn't know what came next. We were terrified of death because there was no answer. We no longer have to be afraid. And perfect love rules out all fear. And now because of what Jesus did, we can walk in love and we can walk in truth and we can walk in peace with eternal life with the Father forever. Scripture tells us that in the life to come, because listen, heaven is not the final outcome for Christians. God, we get that so mistaken and confused. In the life to come, we will serve him in a new kingdom. It says the heavens and the earth will pass away and all things will be made new. It says we will rule as kings and priests alongside God our Father, and he will live amongst his people, and that his glory will literally light up the entire world. All things have been put under his feet. He is victorious, ruling at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And now we as Christians and those who have not accepted the gospel, we are eagerly awaiting the culmination of time. Because we see hopelessness, but we have to understand God is playing the long game. This was not just a remedy, boom, to make all things perfect. God had a plan before the foundations of the world. God is playing the long game. So while what we see right now, we may not think it, we may not see it because it feels and it looks hopeless. But there's a time coming. This is what Paul talked about. He said, God had overlooked your ignorance. Ignorance is not a bad thing. Ignorance is simply not knowing. God overlooked the seasons of you not hearing the gospel. God overlooked the times you didn't know about Jesus. He overlooked your arrogance not to accept the gospel because you were too smart for that stuff. He overlooked that for this moment, for this point in time. He overlooked it so that you would be at crossroads on February 13th at 11.06 a.m. Because this is another chance to listen and accept Jesus. Nothing is done by accident. Nothing is a coincidence. Everything you see around you was perfectly designed to happen the way it does. The oxygen you breathe, the food you have over there, the people you talk to. It was designed and ordained and sovereign for this moment in time. And now I want to give you a chance, and we don't call it relationship with Jesus in this church. We call it union with Jesus. 
Because I don't just want you to be stuck in the friend zone with Jesus. I don't want you to just know about Jesus. I don't just want you to hear about Jesus. I want you to be so intimately intertwined with him that you share his very same spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says this, Those who are joined to Christ are one spirit with Christ. So I don't want to invite you into a relationship. I want to invite you into union. And I'm here to tell you definitively, there's only one way to God. There's only one way to heaven. That is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Scripture tells us this, that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that very spirit that rose Christ from the dead comes to live in our mortal bodies. He wants to give you a new life. He wants to give you a new identity. In a world that tries to define you in a billion different ways, he wants to look at you and say, you're a son. You're a daughter. Don't listen to that, that crap the world is feeding you. You're a daughter. You're a son. You are good. You are not broken. You are not trash. You are not a mistake. Someone in this room needs to hear that this morning. You are not a mistake. I don't care what your parents told you. I don't care what your auntie, your cousins, or your grandmammy told you. You are not a trash. You are not a mistake. No matter what you have done, this is the beauty of God. You are not, from, not far from him even now. Even now. When Paul was speaking to the, the Athenians, he said, even now you are not far from him. Everyone in this room, even now, I don't care what you've done, even now you are not far from him. And when, when you give your life to Jesus, you surrender all to him. Ephesians 2.13 says that now those who were far from him have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Father is with us. The Father is with me right now in this moment, and I believe he is speaking through me these words of hope to you today. God is not looking for perfection. He is looking for transparency and vulnerability. Whoever told you you had to be perfect to be a Christian lied to you. I fail every day, but I have a Messiah who sees me and knows me even in my failures. He is made strong in our weakness. Through faith, we are saved. Listen, not just from hell. I don't want you to go to hell. Hell is a horrible place, but I'm not going to try to scare you into loving God. I want to love you into loving God because God sent his son not to scare the world, but because he loved the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. I'm not here to scare you. I'm here to love you. We're not just set free and saved from, from hell, but we're set free and saved from sin. We are set free and we're able to live in the purposes he always had planned for you. If you're not walking in the purposes of God today, you're missing out on something beautiful because every single one of you have something inside of you. You have gifts and talents and all these beautiful things that God wants to use for great purposes. And it's in you now. It's just lying dormant until you accept the call. And so I'm asking you today to, to repent of the past. And what does this mean? It means to turn from your ways, from your old ways, and turn to Jesus and accept his. Y'all, it's a free gift. It's free, but it was bought at such a price. His free gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And through our faith in him as the son of God, that he lived the perfect life we could not. He died the perfect death we could not. And he rose again three days later as victor over all, the king of heaven and earth with all authority and power in his hands. And a time is coming, hear me please, 
A time is coming where the world will be judged for how we lived our lives on this planet. God has excused our ignorance and our arrogance for thousands of years. He's a long-suffering God. But a time is coming where he and the man he has assigned as a righteous one will judge. He'll do what he has warned us of. Not Listen, not because he hates us or because he's evil and wishes harm on us, but listen, but because his plan to restore all things Listen, God doesn't just want to save you and let you live a nice little life here. He's providing one far better in the life to come. But because his plan to restore all things and to create a new world in the end must happen through cleansing. Cleansing of humanity and all things created. Time is coming to a culmination. And for the past thousands of years, he's overlooked our ignorance and our arrogance. He's overlooked it for a time, but a time is coming And I genuinely want you to be in the family. I want you to be a child of God. I want you to be my brother and sister in Christ. And and I want you to do what we call become saved by giving your faith in Jesus and to be sanctified. Sanctification is being cleansed of the old and made more like Jesus. I want that for you because I love you. I may have never met you, but I love you. I love you enough to tell the truth. I love you enough to tell the truth that can hurt our feelings and produce something, and it's called conviction. Conviction is when we feel bad about the way we're living because we are called to something greater. And I won't lie to you and say being a Christian is easy. Being a Christian is one of the hardest things you could ever do, but it's the greatest thing you could ever do. It's the greatest decision you could make for you and your family and your friends. And Jesus even warned us. He said, you will be persecuted for having faith in me. So I'm not telling you it's easy, but I'm telling you he died for this purpose, for this reason. Now, I want to give you a chance, everyone in this building, to step into union with Jesus Christ God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit to walk in a newness of life with him so that we can walk this life with you. So with every head bowed and every every eye closed, today in this moment, this is a personal decision. And we're opening the doors for two, two types of people. Because I know what it's like to give your heart to Jesus and to run. And I want to see boldness, not because people are looking at you, but because you're making a decision for the gospel. And if you, for the first time, you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you feel confident in your heart that you were put here today for a purpose, for a reason, that you did not come here by chance, I want you to raise your hand if you want to give your heart to Jesus for the first time. And the second one is this, if you've given your heart to Jesus in the past, but life got hard, life became difficult, you did some things you're not proud of, and you turned and you want to rededicate your life, that means you are re-surrendering your heart to Jesus, I want you to raise your hand. You can put them down and I want us all to pray together. I want you to repeat after me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice upon the cross. Thank you for living the perfect life I could not. Thank you for dying the perfect death I could not die. And thank you again for rising from the dead three days later. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you are who you said you are. And I thank you that salvation and hope and truth are found in you, King Jesus. I surrender my life to you. 
I surrender my will to you. And through your Holy Spirit, I will follow you into my purpose and into my calling. In your mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen and amen. I just want to say again, thank you everybody for coming today. Thank you for taking part in this because we love you guys and we're thankful that you are here. And I'm going to pray for us because we're about to go eat and have some fun. So I'm going to pray over the food and you guys can start making your way back there. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this day to celebrate with our family and our friends. Jesus, we thank you for everything you've done. Lord God, we just pray that you would bless our time together, our fellowship, and our time to be together. Lord God, that you would bless the food and that we would bless you in return. In your mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you guys. You guys can head over <laughs> across the street.